Ladies and gentlemen, friends, welcome to Torah Studies. I want to begin with, um, with a bit of news, not positive news, uh, a bit of sad news. Um, many of you know Ray, um, our good friend Ray, her sister Lillian, passed away, um, passed away last night. And um, Ray is, uh, is busy with the, the funeral preparations, which is going to be out of town. But I know that she would appreciate, I'm sure she would appreciate um, messages of condolences and just letting her know that, uh, that we're all, you know, here with her. So if anybody wants to reach out to her and wants her information, you can reach out to me and I will share the information. Um, I'd rather do that than just share kind of more publicly. So if you want to reach out, let me know and, uh, and I can share that information. Um, um, Lillian, uh, sorry, Leah Bas um, Chaya Rus. So, anyway, um, I wanted to share that information. Let's begin the class. So we're dedicating the class in her honor, in Lillian's honor, and uh, in her memory, and in Ray's honor. She should have the strength to, uh, uh, to do everything that she needs to do. Okay, so let's begin the class. I'm going to mute everybody just to have a nice, clean background. Remember, you can always unmute yourself at any time uh, to jump in with questions or comments. So today we speak about... A mitzvah that comes up in this week's Torah portions, and I say that with an S at the end because it is indeed a double portion this week. If one portion is great, two portions are even better. And indeed, we have two Torah portions to study, Tazria and Mitzorah. And one of the main topics of these two Torah portions is on the um, on the reality, the biblical um, malady called sarat, which is typically translated as leprosy, but which is not really leprosy. It's a spiritual skin ailment that was born of spiritual deficiencies, which is not prev- which does not exist nowadays. It only existed back the times of the temple. But tonight's tonight's class is not going to be on sarat on the on this skin condition spiritual skin, skin condition. Rather, tonight's class is going to focus on a mitzvah that we've spoken about before. The mitzvah of Brit Milah circumcision. And the reason is because at the beginning of the two Torah portions, Tazria, it talks about the laws regarding the sacrifices that a woman brings after in times of the temple, after she gives birth to a baby boy or a baby girl. So the Torah details that if a woman gives birth to a boy, then there's a certain protocol with a certain amount of time after which there's certain sacrifices brought. If a woman gives birth to a girl, then there's another period of time followed by a set of sacrifices to thank God for the child, etc. But in the context of these laws... It mentions that if a boy is born, by the way, don't forget about circumcision. So I want to ask you a question. And I think the last circumcision that I attended was a virtual circumcision. (laughs) Right, Amy? That was, yeah. So that was uh, about four months ago. So when it comes to circumcision... Here's my question. Get ready to hit the unmute button or if you're feeling confident, unmute already for the question I'm about to ask. All right? Question about circumcision. 
Is a Brit Milah done during the day or is it done at night or both? Buzz in for the answer if you got it. That's an open question. Morning. Morning. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, is a circumcision allowed to be performed at night? What do you think? Yes, no, maybe. This is open to everybody. I'm going to say yes. Okay. I'm going I'm to say no because they didn't have uh, electricity and lights that night. Yeah, that would be awkward, right? It's a, you want the Mohel to have full access to lighting. <laughs> good, very good point. Very good point. Okay. Very pragmatic. Very pragmatic doctor. <laughs> He's like, wait, we're not messing around with this. Experience. Yes, yes, especially in your specific area of medicine, I would imagine that you, uh, you can weigh in on that. Um, question, question. If a Brit Milah is done at night, yeah, is it kosher or not? What do you think? Kosher or not? Circumcision done at night, yes, good or not good? Probably not supposed to do it, but it's probably kosher. All right. So here's the deal. Listen, I'm just taking the temperature of the class. Um, Halacha says, Jewish law says, that circumcision, a brit milah, is meant to be done during the day. Whoa, that was a little too loud. And if it's done at night, according to many opinions, the brit milah is no good, Right? The refs go, no good. Sorry, that's in football for a field goal. But it's no good. And another procedure needs to be done. I, I hate saying that, but that's according to most halakhic authorities. A Brit Milah done at night is not considered to be a kosher Brit. And thus, a little bit of blood has to be drawn again in another ceremony with the blessings recited regarding the Brit Milah. So you would do the blessings again. The Mohel would draw a little bit of blood, not a circumcision. Again, I mean, it's, uh, it's already the physical thing is done, but the, the mitzvah wasn't done in the proper way. And thus, it would be done with a little bit drawing of blood. And, um, and uh, in other words, like there's a little bit of a... A, a mark made to draw blood, and then uh, the, the blessing is said, and then the, the blood is drawn, and then that is considered to be the kosher form of Brit. That's, that's the law. Now the question is, where do we know this from? Where does this come from? How do we know that a circumcision must be done during the day? I'm so glad you asked, because the answer, the source, comes from this week's Torah portion. Tazria. And Mitzorah, but it's at the beginning of the first of the two, which is Tazria. I am going to share my, my screen with you, and we're going to take a look at the verse, and then take a look at what the Medra says on the verse, and we're going to derive some laws. Let's begin our exploration with the verse from Torah. All right, I'm going to share my screen with you. Let me get the right screen to share. All right, please let me know if you can see text 1A. Thumbs up if, yeah, all right, perfect. Good. Tov ma'od. Let's make this a drop bigger. 
All right, and let's ask David. Dr. David, please jump in text 1A from our Torah portion. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. There we go. Now, what do you notice? Which word do you notice that might clue us into our conversation today? Is a Brit Milah supposed to be done day or night? The day. There you go. There you go. It says on the eighth day, Brit Milah, Yimo Basar Laso, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. It says clearly that it should be done on the day. Take a look at how the Midrash, Torah Kohanim, that is the Midrash, one of the Midrashim on, uh, on Leviticus, on Vayikra. Take a look at what it says. David, please continue on the 8th. On the 8th. One might assume that it may be performed either on the 8th day or on its preceding night. To clarify, the Torah adds on the 8th day, and it must be performed during the day. However, this only teaches that an 8-day-old newborn must be circumcised by day. But how about one who is circumcised on day 9, 10, or 11? From where do we know that a delayed grit may also not be performed at night? To resolve this, the Torah adds, and on the eighth day. So thank you. Let me just reiterate. It's, I think this is clear, but let me just, just to make sure we all got it, I want to reiterate the limud, the learning, and the, the derivation that the, that the Midrash, Torah Kohanim, um, expounds that David just read. So the Torah says, Bashmini, on the 8th. In other words, the Brit Milah is done, Bashmini, on the 8th. So the Medrash says, in its back and forth way, you might have thought that it's supposed to be done on the 8th, whether by day or on the night, the day begins at night, right? So it would mean, all right, just to make it simple. Let's say a baby is born on a Tuesday. That's, let's do a Wednesday, actually, because today is Wednesday. Let's say a baby is born on a Wednesday, Wednesday morning. So the eighth day is Wednesday, because you count that first day. So it's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbat, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And the eighth day is, once again, Wednesday. Now, the, the Wednesday, that eighth day actually begins Tuesday evening at nightfall. Tuesday night is already halachically, from a Jewish perspective, the next day it's already considered to be that Next day, that eighth day. So the, the Midrash says, the Torah says it's supposed to be done on the eighth. You might have thought that it could be done whether the day or the night preceding. So therefore the Torah says, Bayom Hashmini. It's supposed to be done on the eighth day, which specifies day and not night. Where's this from again? The verse says right here in Leviticus Haeli. And on the eighth day, it says, Uvayom Hashmini. Not Ubashmini, not on the eighth, but by Yomashmini on the eighth day. And so the Midrash says that that emphasis of day or that specification of day tells us that you cannot do it at night. So if you did it the night of the eighth day, in other words, my example, Tuesday night at 10 p.m., it's already halachically the next day, but it's at night, no Brits. No, no brit milah, no circumcision. It's not good. You got to wait to the next morning. However, the, med the medrash continues, and this is the last little back and forth, right? The analysis continues. You might have thought that this only applies to a child, to a baby that has the brit on that actual eighth day, that for whatever reason, you have to wait till the actual day of the eighth and not the night before, which is the night of the eighth day, but the eighth day itself. But what happens if 
for whatever reason, the child is not circumcised on the eighth day, what if it's the ninth day, the tenth day, the eleventh day, or maybe two weeks later or a month later? You know, many times a Brit Milah is postponed for various reasons, many of them medical. So what happens if a Brit is postponed? You might have thought, well, if it's after the eighth day anyway, if it's after that whole segment, it's a month later. So maybe you could do it at night. So the Medrash says, no, that's why the Torah says, and on the eighth day. What's the and? What's that extra letter vav? Right? Again, looking at the verse, it says, it doesn't say, it doesn't say, Bashmini the eighth. It doesn't just say Bayomashmini the eighth day. It says Ooh Bayomashmini. And on the eighth day, what's the extra word and? And tells us that whether it's the eighth day, or whether it's the twenty-eighth day, or whether it's the hundredth day, it always has to be done during the day and not at night. Right? That's what the measure says. To resolve this, the Torah adds, and on the eighth day, that and, that extra letter vav, teaches us that no matter when the Brit is done, it's always daytime and not at nighttime. And as the good doctor said, it's good pr- making sure that you can see properly. That's maybe a pragmatic reason, but it seems like for some reason, it is a daytime mitzvah and not a nighttime mitzvah. Okay? And as I said before, according to many halachic um, uh, authorities, if, if it is done in the evening, it becomes problematic. And, and it has to be redone. I mean, not the whole thing, but at least some sort of symbolism has to be redone um, at some point during a daytime session. All right, I want to check in. So far, so good? Yes? Yes? Okay. Chazen, jump in. Don't forget to unmute. Okay, does it have to do with the... Uh, with the the Yemeni dog that that they can't really celebrate because because of the eight days you know after the birth is that interesting does that have anything to do with very that? very interesting very interesting but we see in the medrash that even if it's a if it's a Brit that happens way after day eight it still needs to be on the daytime and on the nighttime so it seems like there's an energy of day as opposed to energy at night. But I, I, hear, I hear your idea. Well, I actually think... Also, if you... Uh, I mean, since Brit Milah is, you know, one of the most important uh, mitzvah, correct? I mean, nobody argues with that. Then then you do it during the day because you have to be reasonable mitzvah. So you do it as early as possible to, to be reasonable. Oh. I like that, okay. but one could argue, I agree, but, but one could argue that if you're really being Zriz in the mitzvah, if you're really being, if you're really practicing alacrity, so then you would do it the night before. In other words, like Shabbat, right? Shabbat begins Friday night, so instead of waiting till the morning, you can prav a Brit, you can, ha- you can celebrate the Brit. But they didn't have these in those days. Oh, uh, okay, good, so pragmatic considerations. Fine, but what we see here... But what we see here is the idea that the Brit Milah in Halacha, in Jewish law, is a daytime observance, a daytime mitzvah, a daytime ritual, and it's not for the night. Now, this evokes a very strong question. And what's the question that it evokes? So the question is, when you look at the source of Brit Milah, it seems like one of the major sources in history was actually done at night. What am I talking about? Friends, 
We just came from the holiday of Passover. And as, of me, and, and, and as, many, of, and as many of you know, the, the mitzvah of the, the, the exodus occurred on the night of the 15th day, the night of the 15th of Nisan. It occurred at night, and it was on that night, and it might have been a dark and stormy night, or maybe it wasn't a dark and stormy night. I don't know. I wasn't there. But here's what I do know, that there were two mitzvot that happened that night that triggered the exodus. What were the two mitzvot? What were the two mitzvot that happened that night? Mitzvah number one was the Paschal Lamb. The offering of the carbon Pesach, the Paschal Lamb. And mitzvah number two was, <laughs> exactly, circumcision was the Brit Milah, right? It was the Brit Milah, the circumcision. It was the night of blood. It was the night of blood, if I'm not mistaken, the verse, and I know I'm not mistaken because we just celebrated Passover and the Haggadah is fresh in my mind. We even recite one of the blessings that is one of the verses that's recited at a Brit Milah that talks about the people wallowing in their blood. We, we read that at the Seder. We read that in commemoration of the Brit Milah that was done the night of the Exodus. I'm going to get to the sources just so you can see it inside. We'll study it together. You'll see it for yourself. But I first want to present it outside to tell you where we're going with this. On the night of the Exodus, the Jewish people did two mitzvot. They brought a Paschal lamb and the men performed the mitzvah of Brit Milah. And that triggered, and both mitzvot were associated with blood. They painted the doorposts with blood, and then God passed over the homes. And then the exodus happened. We've all seen the movie. Here's the point. That epic, Brit Milah, that mass circumcision ritual that was done in Egypt that triggered the exodus happened not by day, but by night. And where we're going with this is it's go we're going to therefore form the question, a fundamental question. If we know that Brit Milah is a daytime mitzvah, then why in Egypt did they do it at night? And if in Egypt they did do it at night, so why is it for us a daytime mitzvah? Are you with me on the question? Yes. It, we know in Allah it's daytime mitzvah, so why then did they do it at night, Dr. D? Go ahead. Don't forget to unmute. So, I'm thinking that down the road, wasn't there also a commandment to recircumcise um, the males in the desert, or are those just the... The males were born in the desert who had not been circumcised then? I believe, good question, I believe that it was those who were not circumcised or who were born afterwards that were meant to be circumcised. But it seems like it was a prerequisite, as we'll see in the sources in a moment, that it was a prerequisite to get out of Egypt. You had to have not a vaccine card, but you had to have a Brit card or else um, you weren't getting out. But, but you would think that after Sinai, they would know the uh, commandment for Brit Milah on the eighth day. 
This is the first, I, my, my understanding is after Sinai, this is the, our Torah portion is the first time the mitzvah is stated after Sinai. In other words, in other words, as Maimonides writes, and we've mentioned this in other previous classes, the mitzvot that we do today is not because of the patriarchs, not because of Abraham, not because of Moses before Sinai, but every mitzvah that we do today is because of the post-Sinai commandment, which means that we do Brit Milah today because of the verse in our Torah portion that says, uh, It says on the eighth day, circumcise the, uh, the flesh of his foreskin. So that, that's why we do Brit Milah. And from there, our sages learn that it's a daytime, not a nighttime. Our question is simply this, right? If the energy of Brit Milah is connected with a daytime ritual, if that's the, the whole energy, so why then to do it at night? Even if it was before Sinai, whatever, it might say, okay, it's different, it wasn't the same commandment, it was pre-Sinai, this is post-Sinai, sure. But why, why go the opposite way? Why, why? I mean, just to be different? Like, wh why was that a nighttime thing? So before we address, the, before we answer it, Let's actually establish that indeed that was the case. And I'm going to present you, I can almost guarantee, almost, I can't, listen, nothing is a guarantee. I can almost guarantee you that you've never heard of this teaching before, what I'm about to share with you. How do I know this? I was also surprised. Take a look at the following text, which I love. And it may, it may seem bizarre at first. Work with me. It's really, really Mind-blowing. All right, I'm going to share my screen with you. Stay tuned for the share. The share has happened. Text 2A, let's ask Adina Malka. Please read this one. Text 2A, take a look at the source. Midrash Shemot Rabbah. It's the, Shemot, it's the Exodus Midrash. Please, Adina Malka, take it away, the Holy One. The Holy One, blessed be he, wished to redeem the Israelites, but they lacked merit. What did God do? He called to Moses and said to him, Go circumcise them. Still, many would not commit to undergo circumcision. To motivate them, God instructed them to prepare the paschal offering. When Moses prepared the offering, God decreed upon the four winds of the world, and they blew into the Garden of Eden. At his behest, those winds imbued the aromas of Eden, into the smell of Moses' offering. Consequently, all the Israelites, faint with craving for the heavenly meat, gathered before Moses, saying, We beg of you, please let us eat of your paschal offering. God said, If you do not become circumcised, you shall not eat of this meat. As the verse relates, God said to Moses and Aaron, This is the decree of the paschal offering. No one uncircumcised may eat from it. Immediately they gave themselves over and underwent circumcision, and the blood thereof mingled with the blood of the paschal offering. God then passed among the people and picked each one up, kissing and blessing them. I told you you probably didn't hear this one before. It's unbelievable. Look at the story. Thanks for reading that. Look at the story. 
It says, basically, God wanted to redeem the Jewish people, but they were bereft of mitzvot. They had languished for 200 plus years in Egypt, slavery, idolatry even. They needed some merits. So he gave them the mitzvah of Brit, circumcision. But many of them did not want to do it. So God said to Moses, prepare the carbon Pesach, the Paschal lamb, the Paschal offering. And then Moses brings it. God causes this heavenly divine aroma to fill and to carry with the, the offering, the Paschal lamb. And it smelled heavenly. And the people wanted it. They craved the food. They said, Moses, give us some food. We beg of you, please let us eat of this offering. And Moses says, you want it? You got to have a Brit Milah, you got to have a circumcision. Immediately, they said, no problem, that's it. What's the moral of the story? The key to a Jew's heart slash whatever is through the stomach, right? The key to a mitzvah is feeding the people. God says, you want the barbecue? You want the roasted meat? No problem, but you're going to need to do the mitzvah, at which point they said, no problem, the Brit is on, it's happening. They did the circumcision that night. They ate of the Paschal offering. The blood's mixed together, and then the rest is history. I, before we get to questions, let me just share a related midrash of Shir Shirim Rabbah, text 2b. Um, Adina Malka, if you don't mind reading one more, uh, this is pretty much the same idea, just from a different source with different words, but the same concept. The Israelites said, Moses, our teacher, Give us something we can eat. He answered them. God said to me as a rule, no uncircumcised male may eat of the paschal offerings. Immediately, every one of the Israelites placed his sword upon his side and circumcised himself. Yeah, that's a, listen, it's, it's a little bit dramatic there at the end with a description of, of how it was done. But it's a similar teaching, right? The people said to Moses, we want to eat. We want to eat this lamb. We want to eat this roasted offering. And God's, and, sorry, and Moses said to them, here's the rule. No uncircumcised male may eat of the offering. So Brit or bust. So what they do, that's it. They place their sword upon their thigh. And that's a euphemism for saying they went ahead. And that's it. They did the Brit. They circumcised. Each one circumcised himself. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that God wanted the people to have the mitzvah of Brit. God caused the aroma of the Paschal lamb to be heavenly and divine. The people wanted it. Moses says, this is what you need to do. And they did it. But here's my point. When did it happen? At night. Because that's when they brought the Paschal lamb. That's when they roasted it. That's when Moses was eating it. You can only eat it at night. So if they wanted to eat it, it means it was at night, which means when did they do the mitzvah at night? And so my question is, why at night? It's actually not my question. It's the Rebbe's question. The Rebbe asked this question, why, if the mitzvah Brit Milah is a daytime mitzvah, as it is today, so why then was it done at night? Now, I get it. I get it. You can say, whoa, slow down. They weren't doing it because of the post-Sinai mitzvah. They didn't have the same rules and regulations that we have. And that's true. A hundred percent true. So on a technicality, there's no question. Yeah. But my question is not about the law, but about the spirit if the energy of Brit Milah is a daytime mitzvah energy, so then why when they did it in Egypt prior to the Exodus, 
Why did it assume a nighttime energy form? Question make sense? Yes? Okay. Take a look at how the Rebbe formulates the question. Again, it's not a question from a halachic perspective because legally there's no question. We do the mitzvah because of the post-Sinai commandment. They were doing it pre-Sinai ritual, you know, get out of jail card, do the circumcision first. But fine, God could have done that during the day. God could have told them during the day, go ahead with it. So why was it specifically left to the night? That's the question that the Rebbe asks, and that's the question that we are going to ask right now as I share my screen. Here we go. This is the Rebbe's question, and we have here um, Dr. Maxi. Please read text number three, where the Rebbe asks for clarification. The story needs clarification. Granted, inasmuch as this was before Matan Torah, the Jews were still allowed to circumcise at night as it wasn't yet, a pro wasn't yet prohibited. But on a deeper level, why would God specifically orchestrate the event to take place at night? The Midrash describes many uncircumcised Jews being miraculously compelled to perform the breach by quote, God decreeing upon the four winds of the world, end quote, causing an irresistible fragrance to be exuded from Moses' paschal lamb. Why, then, couldn't the same or a similar miracle have been orchestrated by God so that the Jews would be told no one uncircumcised may eat from it and perform the mitzvah properly during the day? Such a, thank you, such a simple, once the Rebbe asks it, it's like, yeah, that's a really good question. If God is do, if God is miraculously compelling or enticing the people to the mitzvah, to do the mitzvah, so why does he do it at night? Which is the wrong, which the way we have it today is the wrong time for the mitzvah, the wrong energy. It's the wrong time for the mitzvah. Why not do it at night? Sorry, why not do it during the day when it's the right time for the mitzvah? That's the core question that we're asking now. Is the mitzvah a day energy? And if it is a day energy, so then why is it done at night in, in, in Egypt? And if you're gonna tell me, well, that's when it happened to work out, no camp, no Baba Mises that happened to work out. God made a miracle. If God made the miracle, God chose when to make the miracle. So if God is choosing when to make the miracle, so why doesn't God choose the right time? Now, who are we to tell God what the right time is? But it seems like God wants it to be done during the day. So why then did he want it to be done at night? What is going on? Now, before we answer this question, I need to bring out the point that there are commentaries that actually ask the question, how could they have done it during the night when that's a violation of the mitzvah? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read text four right here. I'm going to read this one. And again, this is not the Rebbe. This is a, Rabbi Shmuel Yafi Ashkenazi, who lived in the 1500s. Look at what he writes. He poses the question in a different way. But as we'll see, the question is not really a question. The Rebbe's question is the one that we're going to have to grapple with because we have answers for this question, for these questions. Take a look at his questions. They immediately circumcised themselves 
at night upon smelling the Paschal lamb and being told that the only way to get it is by circumcision. So they went ahead and did it. So Rabbi Shmuel Yafi Ashkenazi asks, one second, wasn't it forbidden to perform a Brit at night? Don't we have a prohibition about a Brit at night? Also, he says, that night was Passover. How then could they have violated the holiday, right? As only a timely circumcision of an eight-day-old may violate Shabbat and Yom Tif. The law is that, yes, you can do a Brit Milah, a circumcision on Shabbat or a holiday, but that's only when it's that eighth day. But if it's pushed off, then you're pushing it off. If you push it off anyway, then you wait till, then you don't do it specifically on Shabbat or a holiday. So if that's the case, then why did they do this Brit for adults on Passover, on the holiday. Why at night and why on a holiday? Those are his questions. The Rebbe says those aren't really questions because number one, it wasn't forbidden to perform a Brit at night. That we only got after Sinai and this was before Sinai. And the idea that it was the night of Passover, so how could they have done it on, on the holiday? The prohibition of work on the holiday is only when we commemorate the holiday but not that original day itself. Does that make sense what I just said? No. The night of the Exodus was not a holiday, a Passover yet. It was the actual day of the Exodus. The Torah says when you commemorate the next year and the next year after that, when you commemorate the Exodus, on that commemoration day, don't do work. But on the night itself, yeah, the work wasn't prohibited. So there was no issue about doing a Brit Milah at night. So number one, the laws of Brit Milah, and no circumcising at night wasn't yet given. And number two, it wasn't a holiday in which work was prohibited. That's only the commemoration of the Exodus, not the night of the Exodus itself. Therefore, these two questions, although asked by this rabbi, these two questions don't really bother us too much. The question that does bother us, on the other hand, is the question that the rabbi does ask, which is, Enachinami, true, they didn't do anything halakhically wrong. There's nothing wrong with the Jews in Egypt doing a circumcision that night, that Exodus night, at night, on the night of Passover, no problem. They are legally fine. The question is more on God, right? Why is God orchestrating it to be done at night and not the day when God clearly tells us he wants it for all time to be done during the day? Why then was it done at night? I need to take a breath. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, so I'm sorry that it doesn't have to do with Brit Milah, but where, where it says, so a one who is uncircumcised cannot eat of it, right? There is this custom today of inviting non-Jews to a Seder. How do we get around that? Because... In a way, I think it's a good thing to invite non-Jews to a state. Sure. But on I the agree. Other hand, you know, you're going to have somebody who's not circumcised, even a Jew who's not circumcised. How do you keep him from participating in a Seder? The right? good news is... And you're not going to take a sword and circumcise him right then and there. God forbid. I, you don't set the table. You don't set the table with a sharp knife? That's just me? I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Listen, the good, the good news is that's not a steak knife. You have, you have to announce you have to announce to your you have to announce to your guests one second. There's the, the, the knife that you have is not for a steak. Anyway, but listen, it, it's a good question. I would say simply I, I would say simply I always do a plastic 
One second. I would say simply we're not eating the Paschal lamb, so we don't have an issue today. It's a it's a it's a ceremony. It's not a it's not a it's not a, a sacrificial meat that we're eating. The sacrificial meat that was eaten had a different status. Now, if you want to apply that also to the custom of the Seder today, which is based on commemoration of that, I don't know. I that that I would have to look into and leave up to uh, to the other stories. No. No, it's 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 all good. I like to I like to be kept on my toes, but I I don't see an issue anyway. But as I said, you know, if you want to be sure, then always keep a keep a sharp blade handy. Now back to our story. So the question is, the question on the table is, um, why at night on on the Exodus the night? Why do they do it then at night if it's a daytime energy? And here's the big idea, and 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 what we're gonna do right now is strip the notion of day and night away from a time-based understanding and speak about it more euphemistically, more conceptually. Day represents the good times and night represents the challenging times, right? It was a dark and stormy night. Night represents challenge. Day represents good times. Again, your mileage may vary day and night technically, but euphemistically, this is what it connotes. And here's the big idea, and we're going to expand on this. I want to drop the kernel of the idea, and then we're going to elaborate. Brit Milah, circumcision, the mitzvah, has been done historically both during the day times of history, as well as the night times of history. We as a people have performed the mitzvah, whether it, whether it be in good times, i.e. in times of peace and security and serenity and prosperity, we've also done the mitzvah of circumcision in the most difficult times, the times of persecution, times of danger, times of even decrees specifically targeting circumcision. And to illustrate this, I have to share with you a beautiful story. This is a story that I remember hearing as a child, or I don't know, child, but as a, as a younger person. And I want to share it with you. It's really powerful, and it's in the text. By the way, if you're wondering, if you're thinking to yourself, man, I would love a Torah studies book so that I could read these texts anytime, even after the class, go on Amazon and order the book and you can get it to your house. Second day shipping, prime, free shipping if you have prime, if you want it. If not, then you have to wait till I, till I put it up, which is going to be right now. Here we go. That was just, uh, again, if you want to get it, it's available. If you need the link, I'll share, I'll share the link. It's in the weekly email. Um, otherwise, let me know and I can share it with you. Let's do this. Here's the story. Beautiful story. But sit back, relax. It's a bit of a story. So take a deep breath, grab a beverage. Here we go. Our sages taught, once the Romans forbade the circumcision of Jewish boys. And it was at that time that Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, the, who, the one who compiled the Mishnah, right? It was when he was born. So he was born, Rabbi Yehuda, the author of the Mishnah, was born at a time when circumcision was forbidden. His father, who was the great leader, Rabbi, Rabbi 
Shimon, excuse me, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel said, God commanded us to perform the Brit. And these evildoers decree that we may not. How can we put off God's decree and carry out the whims of some evil man? And like that, he defiantly performed the circumcision on his son. Well, before long, the Romans found out. And Rabbi Shimon was ordered to appear before the Roman governor of his town. Let me explain. Rome, when Rome controlled a, a country, they put in their representatives in the towns to make sure that everything was kosher according to the Romans, right? So when the Roman, when the Romans found out, they sent the rabbi, they brought him in for questioning to the Roman governor of the town, not the emperor, but the Roman governor of his town. Why did you violate the emperor's edict? Asked the frustrated governor. Rabbi Gamliel replied simply, this is what God commanded. Listen, said the governor, I have much respect for you as you are your people's leader, but inasmuch as your act directly violates an imperial edict, I cannot let this pass. Do as you please, was the rabbi's response. What, what, do, you want to do? what do you want me to do? Here's what the, what the governor said. I've decided to send you, your wife, and your circumcised child to the emperor. He, so replied the Roman, he will decide what to do to you. Rabbi Shimon and his wife set out on the long journey to the imperial court. In other words, they went to Rome. I, I mean, I, I believe they went to headquarters. After traveling for a whole day, they arrived at a hotel owned by Severus, the father of Antoninus, who, who had also just been born. This was a Roman family. Okay? Rabbi Shimon's wife and the non-Jewish hostess soon began talking. What brings you here? The hostess asked. The rabbi's wife told her the truth. I just circumcised my son. And now I, my husband, and my newborn are being sent to Rome where we, we, where we will likely be killed. Upon hearing this, the horrified hostess immediately offered to exchange her son, Antoninus, for Rabbi Shimon's baby, Yehuda. In other words, switch the babies for the meeting in Rome. Are you with me on this? If, if you don't get it yet, stay with me. She gravely accepted the offer and continued on the journey with the uncircumcised baby, Antoninus, while leaving her son, Yehuda, circumcised behind in the care of the kind hostess. Upon their arrival, they were shown into the emperor's court and found their town's governor already there. This woman violated the emperor's decree and circumcised her child, the governor accused. I have now brought them here. Please do with her as you wish. Upon hearing the charges, the emperor ordered the baby to be examined. Obviously, there was no sign that a circumcision had been performed because they switched the kids. I decreed against circumcision, and you have brought me an untouched baby, raged the emperor at the governor. Some dignitaries familiar with the story who were also present came to the defense of the governor. We can attest that this baby was circumcised, but these Jews are close to their God, and when they call, he answers. The emperor summarily had the accusing governor executed, rescinding the, rescinded the decree forbidding circumcision, and sent the Jewish couple away in peace. When they exchanged back their children, Antoninus' mother said, Since a miracle was performed through me and my son for you and your son, let us and our children remain friends forever, which is indeed what happened. On account of the breast milk that Antoninus nursed from Rabbeinu HaKadosh's mother, he merited to wait upon the eventual leader of the Jewish people and to study Torah from him, Yehuda. Eventually he became emperor and it is said to have inherited a place in the world to come. 
So here's the story. The story goes, as you saw, the story, oh, by the way, who was this Antoninus? He grew up, according to some historians, he was Marcus Aurelius, who was the Roman emperor between 161 and 180 of the Common Era, which is at the time that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, the author of the Mishnah, was also the leader of the Jewish people, and they were friends. They were the children that had swapped places, and Yehuda's life, little Yehuda, baby Yehuda's life was saved, and the rest is history. Here's the point. There's one point that we're extracting from the story. It's a great story, but here's the one point that we're extracting from the story. Jews have performed circumcision even under the most difficult times, even at night, even when times were difficult. It wasn't just when it was easy. It wasn't just when it was comfortable. It wasn't just when it was painless, so to speak, not for the baby. It was also when it was difficult, when it was painful, when it was even suicidal or, or putting one's life at risk. This is true um, when, when it came to ancient times under Roman rule, this is true when it came to times under Spanish rule, after the expulsion from Spain, and Jews were secretly practicing their Judaism underground, right? Jews pretended to convert, but remained Jewish, right? Conversos, many still did the circumcision, even though if they were found out, they would be immediately executed. This happened during the Holocaust, People circumcised their children, and it happened in the former Soviet Union when these things were prohibited as well. Um, there's a count, I, I don't even know where to start countless stories. We just did one from ancient history, but even in modern history, the same is true. And so what's the point? Mitzvah, the mitzvah of Mila, the mitzvah of circumcision, is not just a daytime mitzvah, it's also a nighttime mitzvah conceptually. But let's understand this on a deeper level and try to come full circle and bring everything together. What makes this mitzvah so special? Why is it that even in difficult times, Jews have put their lives on the line to perform this mitzvah? Why is it? It seems like such a difficult mitzvah. If we were ever looking for a way out, this would be the first one to drop almost. You would think that, okay, we're done. Let's uh, worry about the other ones. Let's drop this one. But yet, throughout history, Jews have held on to this mitzvah with, with, with great care and devotion. Why is it so special? It's because of what it represents. What does it represent? We've talked about the mitzvah of circumcision many times in many different classes over the years. So I want to summarize the, what we've discussed in previous classes and make it very short and to the point. Circumcision, it represents... A, an uncompromised connection with God that transcends logic and rationale. There's a way to plug into God when it makes sense. There's a way to connect with God when I understand what it means. And then there's the selfless dedication that transcends logic, transcends rationale, transcends normal thinking. And that's what is represented by Brit Milah. Not only because it doesn't really make sense, which is true also, but because it's done to an eight-day-old baby who doesn't have the rationale, doesn't have the mind, doesn't have the brain development to understand the nature of the commitment. It's a commitment that transcends logic. It transcends what we call in Hebrew, seichel. It's not limited. It's not limited to the mind, to an intellectual framework. It's a connection to God that is unlimited, that is boundless. It's not rational. It's super rational. This is why 
women have the status of nolad mohol, of being born circumcised. Because although for boys there needs to be a step taken to almost introduce this type of un, this type of boundless commitment, the nature of women, again, by and large, is more spiritual innately. And thus, there doesn't need to be another step to introduce this dedication. That level of commitment innately is already there. A woman is considered not to not need a circumcision, but to already have a circumcision. There's a difference. There's one thing to say that a woman doesn't need a circumcision. But that's not what Halacha says. Halacha says that a woman is considered to have a circumcision already from birth, which is why we name a girl at the first opportunity, the first Torah reading. You don't have to wait eight days for the circumcision to grant the naming and to grant the soul's the, uh, name for the soul. You do it right away because there's nothing missing. There's no other step missing for that full spiritual power. I hope what I'm saying makes sense, even though I'm doing it very quickly, right? And this is why we find historically that the women in ancient times never fell into the same mistakes that the men did. There were men that didn't believe in the Exodus. There were men that it would happen. There were men that complained when they got out of Egypt and there wasn't water or the the travels were a little bit uncomfortable. The men committed the sin of the golden calf consistently, and I have actually, we have the text here in this class that outline all these points, but the Jewish women never participated. In fact, I want to share one of these texts with you just so you see where I'm coming from. And we do still have a few minutes, so we can do a few more texts. Take a look at this one about the golden calf. Text number seven from the Midrash Tanchuma. Take a look at this one. When collecting gold for the golden calf... Yeah, remember that one? Remember that campaign? The men first approached the women, asking for their jewelry. The women stood up to them and said, Never will we forsake our God, who has just performed for us such miracles and might. God forbid that we should fashion an idol. That's what the women said to the men. Are you Meshuga? Are you kidding me? Are you out of your minds? Are you gone bananas? God just took us out from Egypt. We're going to make a golden calf. Get out of here. When the men saw that the women refused to take part, they stripped themselves of the golden earrings that were on their ears. It does not say on their wives' ears, but rather on their ears. They took off their own jewelry, and that's what they melted down for the gold, for the golden calf. The point being that the women never participated. The point being that circumcision represents... An action that declares an unyielding, maybe that's not the right word, an unlimited dedication and commitment to God. A commitment to God that transcends logic, rationale, understanding, limitations of logic. It transcends all of it. This is why that first circumcision or that Exodus circumcision happened specifically at night because it was the, the, the height of Egyptian exile. It was the height of the impurity of Egypt. The evil of Egypt was at its most intense. In fact, in Kabbalah it says that the Jews had sunken into the 49th state of impurity. It says there are 50 stages of impurity, of negativity. And the Jews had fallen down to number 49. Had they gone down one more level, 
they would have been irredeemable. But on this night, they wouldn't sink any lower. They would jump up. Pesach, they would jump over. They would jump out of their spiritual quicksand, of their quagmire. They would jump out of their spiritual negativity and leap to a place of purity. And that happens with the circumcision, which is a leap of faith. To an eight-day, well, they were adults. Most, most were adults then. But it represents this idea of something that transcends seichel, transcends rationale. It's a jump that is illogical, but super logical, beyond logic. That's why it was done at night. Because on that night, the goal was to transform the night into day, the darkness into light. It was about accessing a space within oneself, a connection with God that transcends the distinctions between day and night. So yes, typically a circumcision is meant to happen during the day, but at that night of the Exodus, they jumped with such intensity that the night shone like day. The night was shining like the daytime sky. This also, this also helps us understand the modern connection. And our modern, our modern day insight that we can take from this story. Yes, Brit Mila is a mitzvah that happens during the day nowadays. Because now post-Sinai, we exist on a different dimension where the night can never get as dark as it was, and therefore it's symbolized by the day, which means that we're always on some level in the space of connection. But in the times of the Exodus, it was really dark, and the Brit Milah, the mitzvah, had to counteract even that severe darkness, the 49th level of impurity. But here's the message for us and for all time, even when we do the Brit Milah during the day. The message is, and this is connected with today's energy based on the birthday of the 5th Chabad Rebbe, which we'll speak about in just a moment. The message is that when we find ourselves, even today, in a negative place, in our own form of Egypt, not like that Egypt, not as bad, but in our own mini form of Egypt, and we might think to ourselves, what can I do to get out? I, the road out seems too long, it seems too difficult, it seems too daunting, I'm stuck here forever. The Torah comes along and tells us, just do one mitzvah. One, I don't know, small, but one mitzvah. And you're going to say to yourself, yeah, but how is that mitzvah going to help? How is this one mitzvah going to help? How is it going to change anything? And the answer is, remember when you were in Egypt. And remember when it was really dark. Remember when you were stuck in the 49th level of impurity. And remember how one mitzvah or two, one or two mitzvot, the Paschal Lamb, one mitzvah was able to be the springboard for utter transformation. And logically, it doesn't make sense how one mitzvah can change the reality. But so it was then, and so it is today. One good deed can transform our lives and the world for good. You see, oftentimes we think that the value of one mitzvah is that it might lead to another mitzvah and another mitzvah and then to a real perceptible, perceivable transformation. 
But tonight in this class, I'm saying something different, and I hope that this is coming through. The value of one mitzvah is not in the fact that it might lead to another mitzvah. The value of one mitzvah is in the action itself. Does that make sense what I just said? The transformative power in this one mitzvah is not the long road, is not it's the first step of many. Sure, it could also be that. But the real transformational power of a mitzvah, circumcision and other mitzvah, because we're applying it now across the board, is the ability for this one mitzvah to radically transform everything for the individual and for the world. Today is the second day of ER. And the second day of ER is the birthday of the Rebbe Marash, the fifth Rebbe, Rabbi Shmuel of Lubavitch. And he was known to say the following. When someone comes up to an obstacle, the world says, go around it or go under it. But I say, oh, and then if you can't, then go over it. But I say, from the get-go, go over it. This is an attitude that nothing gets in the way. This is an attitude that there's no such thing called an obstacle. If something is in front of me, the first approach is, let me step over it, let me conquer it, let me take it on, and let me keep on moving. This is the idea of dealing with each and every obstacle as it is on the ground, one step at a time. And it's not about the bigger journey, it's not about the long journey, it's about this one moment. I've quoted this, I don't know how many times, Maimonides writes that every time we're faced with a choice, we should imagine that a moral choice, good or, good or bad, we should imagine that the world is hanging in perfect balance. And if I make the, a good choice, it can swing, tip the scales for good and bring personal redemption and global redemption. Rambam Maimonides does not say, do the mitzvah now because then you'll do another mitzvah and another mitzvah and after 120 years, you'll be at tzaddik and then bring Mashiach. That's not what he says. He says, do one mitzvah now because one mitzvah can change the world. When the Rebbe uh, um, created his mitzvah campaigns, known as, known as mitzvahim, these mitzvah campaigns, for example, the campaign that people should wrap tefillin, the campaign that people should light Shabbat candles, kosher campaign, a Jewish book campaign, etc., mitzvah campaigns. There were 10 of them, and they rolled out at different times throughout the Rebbe's leadership. When the Rebbe rolled out a mitzvah, for example, go hit the streets of Manhattan, ask people if they're Jewish, and if they are, ask them if they like to put on tefillin. There were many people who said, what is the Rebbe doing? With all due respect, what is the Rebbe doing? How can you pull someone off the street who's coming from who knows where, going to who knows where, doesn't know what tefillin is, and ask them to put on tefillin? What's the point? And so many positive said, you know what? Well, maybe it is good. Because if they get a taste of tefillin, so then maybe they're going to put it on again, and eventually they're going to be regular rappers of tefillin. And although that's true, that's not what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe said, you know what the value of putting on tefillin today is? That you put on tefillin today. This one mitzvah is in itself transformative. Not because it's going to lead to another mitzvah. That would, be even, that would also be good. But because this action is infinitely valuable. In the book of Tanya, the author writes that every mitzvah creates an eternal connection that can never be broken. This is a moment in eternity and it's created right now. 
So let's be inspired by the myths of circumcision. That was done in, in, the, in the times of Egypt, in the, at the night of the Exodus, was done at night to signify that a mitzvah has the power to transform night into day, exile into redemption, Egypt into free Egypt. Sorry, free Egypt. Yeah, it has the one mitzvah has the power to radically change everything. Whether it was by Yom Ha'em in those days, or Bizman Hazeh, or in these days, one mitzvah can change the world. Let us all be inspired to do one more mitzvah. Not because of any grand calculation of taking over the world with many more mitzvot, but just because that one mitzvah can make all the difference in the world. Let us tonight, or tomorrow, the next moment, the next opportunity we have to do a mitzvah, we take it, and may that one mitzvah indeed bring about Mashiach. And when Mashiach comes, then we can all be at this course to really understand what's happening. And if, God forbid, Mashiach is not here by next week, then we will learn about what is happening imminently, the Jewish belief in Mashiach. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. I hope you enjoyed tonight's lesson. I hope it resonated with you. The power of now. If you want to talk, couch it in psychological terms, it's the power of now oh, yeah. and being present and, 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 and utilizing the moment that is in front of us to infuse it with meaning and positivity and divine connection and the taste of eternality. May, all, may we all be inspired and may we all be blessed. May we all experience the light that's born of darkness and goodness and blessing in our lives. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining. I'm open to any questions or comments, but again, I want to really plug this course because this is unlike any course we've taught. Also, I've authored a lesson in this course for the entire JLI and tens of thousands of students around the world will be learning a lesson that I wrote from beginning to end. I conceived of and wrote. It's not about me, although it is partially about me. And thus, I invite you all to take this course. And then here's the challenge. It's called the Rabbi Ari Challenge. Can you identify which lesson I wrote? And if you can, you'll receive the special prize of knowing that you got it right. So that's going to happen in this course. It's the one that has, yes, that's the one that's written in black and gold on the, uh, in the student book. Um, yeah, so you have to guess which lesson it is. Rabbi, I want to support everything you said tonight which is so, so that um, usually I'm, I'm a snuggage, you know, and I, I call you out a lot. But I want to I wanna say something about miracles, which, which, you know, the Rebbe, who to me was the most likely, from what I, from the little that I know, I think the greatest Jewish mind of the 20th century and the, um, but, um, and the most understanding, you know, with, with his incredible knowledge. But I want to tell you a story about a miracle because you talked about miracles today and about bris. And, uh, and, and it's really not about me. It's about a miracle, but it happened to me. So when I was three and a half years old, um, we lived with my grandparents in Tel Aviv. My grandfather was a tailor. 
And he went to this little shul. And the rabbi was an amazing scholar. His name was Rabbi Frankel. He later became the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. Um, and every year, the big celebration was Simchat Torah. Moshe Dayan used to be the big star that came. to, And uh, we used to watch it from, like, across the street from my grandfather's terrace. Um, but at my brother's wrist, and he is three and a half years younger than I am, uh, I was watching from the shul, because his bris was in the shul, across the street, it was morning time, of course, and um, my mother's best friend who survived the Holocaust with my mother um, was walking from the bus stop down the street to the shul to come to the bris. And I was standing outside, I saw my mother's best friend, and I ran to greet her. And just as I ran, a car was coming. And basically the car should have hit me. I should have died, because it was speeding down the street. And, and miraculously, I ended up on the hood of the car without a scratch. Wow. And Rabbi Frankel came out saw what, what had happened and said to Biskevich. Mm. And he you you are blessed. You are blessed. Me, you are blessed. And and basically at that moment uh said to me, you are meant for something special. Wow. Beautiful. And that's why I did what I did in my life. So, Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. Amazing what miracles can happen. Mm. Uh, beautiful. I just want everybody to know that. Amazing. I don't want to make it about me. I want to make it about that, that God does cause miracles to happen. Nice. Be Thank you for sharing that story. And it's okay if it's also a little bit about you. It's okay. We, we don't mind either. It's okay if it's about... Anyway... Chazen Ben, Chazen L'chaim, you should have indeed blessings and life and many opportunities to inspire your fellow Jews and fellow human beings to good things and to only good things and when we celebrate many happy occasions together. I want to I bench all of you as well, bench, bless all of you as well, that uh, all of us should be healthy and all of us should be blessed with happiness, menuchat hanefesh, menuchat hadat, a piece of spirit, and a peace of, of, of and serenity as well. And we should be able to face all of our challenges. We shouldn't have challenges. If we have challenges, we should face it with equanimity, with a calm and a security and a belief that if we do what we need to do, the rest will follow. And with that, we'll conclude tonight's class. It's great to see you all. Don't forget, uh, this Friday night, for those that are yet maybe still not signed on for it, really now is the Ni'ila, the closing time for it. Now is the time to act if you want to join in. Um, we have our Shabbat dinner. It's going to be beautiful and deluxe and amazing food this Friday night um, in a safe outdoor environment with precautions taken to make sure that everything is kosher on many different levels. That's Friday night, 7.30. Join us. If you're not yet signed up and you want to, please let me know right away. We'll get you onto the list. I know the people who know the people. So that's Friday night. Next week again, this 
Can Happen, an amazing course about the fierce Jewish optimism in a better world and what we can do to make that happen. If you're not sure about the course, not sure what it's going to do, join the first class free of charge. Check it out and see if you want to continue. And you can do so. Just check it out online, intownjewishacademy.org slash utopia for more information. We have other upcoming events. Um, check the website for more information. I don't want to belabor it too much, but I am looking forward to seeing you all very soon. Lila Tove. Take care, everybody. I have a quick question. Yes, Amy, sure. Sorry. No worries. So, um, Eli, his eighth day was Tisha B'Av. Yes. And ended up doing his bris. Um, In the evening. Night. Yeah. So, I know it was with you guys, so it was, well, I may have, I had to step out, so I may have missed some of it, but it's still legit, I'm assuming. Totally. Yeah. Okay. When we said not to do it at night, um, that means after nightfall. We did it. In the afternoon, after Mincha, totally kosher to do it. I'm trying to remember why we did it specifically then. I remember discussing with Robert Schusterman. The, there were, there, I don't remember the exact um, uh, consideration. So typically, you want to do it as early as possible. But I believe when it's Tisha B'Av, there's a, there's a specific reason why you do wait for later. Maybe to be able to do it, I think I know what it is. Because usually the Brit Milah is associated, part of the... Okay, let me add, add a piece to it. Part of, the mit, part of a mitzvah, really most mitzvot, like really special ones, it's connected with a festive meal. So you do that like a wedding is connected with a meal. The meal is actually called su'udat mitzvah. It's a mitzvah meal. So when it comes to circumcision, it's literally part of the mitzvah is the celebration, which includes food. But on Tisha B'Av, it's a fast day. You can't have a meal. Therefore, you do a close to the evening, close to nightfall, where you could do the mitzvah and then in a short amount of time celebrate with the breakfast and have a, a bit of a meal then. If you did in the morning, it would be like 12 hours between the mitzvah and the celebration meal, if that makes sense. So it's done toward the evening, but it was not done after nightfall. After nightfall would mean, um, you know, after the holiday concluded. And it was, it, if I recall correctly, it was done between Mincha and Mayrif. It was done between mm -hmm. the two services. Gotcha. Yeah. Rabbi, can I ask you a question about sure. Rabbi Ashkenazi? Yes. He was the one that, that uh, the Rebbe said those were, that they were not relevant, but the yes. points were not relevant. Yes. Um, so I, I assume he wasn't supportive, right? I don't know. By his name, I would guess no. Mm. So yeah. I thought of those two objections immediately as well that the Rebbe thought of. So if it was obvious to me, I'm, I'm thinking it's obvious to every yeah. great minor and lesser rabbi. I'm just wondering why. He How did he ask it? Yeah. So, there, so I, I, I didn't do him justice um, because uh, I, I should have. I, I, I should have. There's, there's a bit of a, of a back and forth over there. Yeah. There are some opinions that say that the prohibition against work also was in effect that first Passover as well. It's not just on, this, on the anniversary of, which is what most opinions believe. Some in the minority believe that even that night or that first day of the Exodus or that night of the Exodus, there was also a prohibition of work, which then would beg the question, how can you do the Brit Milah? Which, by the way, is answered... In the text that said that they took swords 
on their, on their thighs. Because uh, malacha, work on holiday and Shabbat, is only prohibited when you do it the normative way. But when you do it in an unusual way, with an unusual tool, then it might not be as prohibited. So thus, there are commentaries that say that it was prohibited on the holiday. So how do you address the question? How do they do this circumcision when it wasn't the eighth day? It was pushed off and they still did it because they use swords, which is not the normal tool for it, etc. Anyway, I, 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 I was concerned that I dismissed it too easily. So as your question, which is, well, then what was he thinking? He seems to be a rabbi that, you know, was a smart guy. So how did he not see those answers? It's a little bit more nuanced than I, I should have presented, but I don't want to get too bogged down in that part of it. But yeah. Good question. Yes, sorry. I'm confused about something like this. All the Jews have to be circumcised because the Levium were never enslaved, correct? And they were learning Torah? Correct. And teaching it to the Jewish people. So I'm assuming that they were circumcised when, at the right time. I would imagine that they had kept the commandments, that they were circumcised, yeah. So, so when, they, when Hashem said to circumcise yourself, were all the Jews instructed the Jewish male to circumcise themselves, including the Levim, or people that had already been circumcised? I mean, no, it no, it was only the people that had never received the circumcision, which were many. The, and, and remember what the Medrash said, I forget which one, maybe the Torah Kohanim or, or, or um, Medrash Rabbah, one of those two. So it said... That no, the the the, the Medrash Rabbah, uh, Shemot Rabbah. It said that many, or is it some had circumcised? So I would agree with your assumption that some were circumcised, some had done it because they did it. Then when Moses gave the call, some did it. Then those that still didn't do it, right? That's what the aroma and the desire for meat brought up. You want the barbecue? You got to do this first. So it was really the, the stragglers, if you will, the ones who were uh, still holding back. That's what that was for. But I would agree with you because it says that Moses was born circumcised, which implies that, 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 that circumcision was a thing for Moses and his family who were from the Levite family. They were Levites from the tribe of Levi. So I would agree with you. And that's my understanding as well. But there were still many, and there's a 600,000 Jewish males between 20 and 60, still a, a bunch of Jews that, uh, that needed circumcision. Remember, remember, many of the Jews were almost indistinguishable from Egyptians at that time. That's what it says, that they served idols and they were involved in all sorts of things. That's the reality. Now, I know it says that the Jews kept their dress and their names and their language, but there were many other ways in which they emulated the Egyptians, including, apparently, not being circumcised. So this was a big mitzvah, and that's, uh, that was a reason for that. And the 80% of the Jews that never came out, yeah. they, were, they were not doing any of this, right? They were yeah. not sacrificing, they were not circumcising, they were, they were yeah. ignoring all they, this. They weren't interested. Now, the Rebbe has a comment about this. Um, and I'm trying to remember what it was. I think we even did it in a class a few years ago that, that moved the percentage a little bit or maybe even a lot. But typically it's understood that only 20%, one out of five left Egypt, um, four-fifths ended up not, of the Jews didn't, and didn't leave because they didn't believe, they didn't want, or whatever it is. 
Um, but I do believe the Rebbe has a bit of a un different understanding of that, which is revolutionary, which I wish I remembered, but it's not fresh in my mind. So I can't, I can only tell you that I think I remember something, but I can't remember exactly what it is. Anyway, till next time. All right. Good to see everybody. I want to wish you all well, lots of blessings. And remember one small action indeed changes the world. All right, take care, everybody. Bye. Have a good night.